0: This is Work Revolution, where we drop the boardroom speak and have real, candid conversations about what's going on in workplaces today and what needs to change in response to our changing world. Hello and welcome back. I am your host, Deborah Eide, and this is part two of my conversation with my new Twitter friend, Senior Associate Lawyer at Learners Jane Scholes. Previously, Jane and I talked about how both parental leave policies and cultural norms around who takes parental leave are impacting the careers of lawyers. For this part, Jane, I want to get your perspective on another thing that's been getting a lot of attention lately, and that's around gender inequality and compensation practices and the wage gap. For sure.
1: And that's a huge issue. And it, and it, it also ties into this, this policy piece. So, um, especially in the legal industry, I think, but in other industries as well, compensation is quite opaque. Um, you don't necessarily know what your colleagues are really making. And people are surprised to hear this sometimes because it's fairly well known that many law firms have what we call lockstep salary for associates. So that just means that based on your year of call, your salary is set and everyone's set the same. So that's, people have said, well then how how can there be a power and pay gap? And the problem is, is that compensation structure doesn't end there, a huge part of compensation for associate lawyers at big firms comes from this discretionary bonus, this annual bonus. And this discretion is where the patriarchy creeps in. So um, typically you don't know what your colleagues are making in terms of their discretionary annual bonus. And that can have a huge impact on what your you know, compensation is at the end of the day. And so there's been a lot of attention lately on this issue, in part because of that power gap series, um, and the fact that the reporters have been having a really hard time getting the data to, to talk about the power and pay gap, because firms aren't willing to give it in most cases. There was a follow-up article um, just a few days after the original Power Gap article about the legal profession where the data from one major law firm, Castles, was anonymously leaked to the reporters and it painted a really grim picture of yeah. Bay Street. And I, I, but I want to be careful to say that I don't think that it's a Castles problem. So we know, now know what the data looks like at Castles and it looks bad, but I would be very surprised if the data at other firms wasn't as bad or worse. Um, so what the data showed was that, um, women made less than men at every level, effectively a a huge part of this was the discretionary bonus. Um, I think the stat was that 44% of women got a bonus at the end of the year, whereas 80% of men did, and that doesn't even get into how much of a bonus, um, was given in each case. And then at the, even at the equity partnership level. So the women who did make it to equity partnership, which is hard to do, um, especially with all the institutional and systemic barriers, um, the women were still making about 25% less than male
0: equity partners. So, so excuse my ignorance, uh, but equity partner means you have to pay in? To
1: typically, it? yeah. So yeah. Um, you're, when you're an associate lawyer, you're an employee of the firm, and then you get invited to be partner. And different firms some firms have no um, no non-equity partners. So lots of firms have, you're invited first to be a non-equity partner, and then your compensation structure changes, You're not an employee, there's typically some type of um, arrangement where you're paid part of your billings. But then the next step and sort of the highest step is equity partner. So you are an owner of the firm, you profit share, and so that's that's typically the, the best position in a law firm. And part of the way that the power and pay gap has been perpetuated in law for a very long time is through the, that two-tiered system. So women were making it to non-equity partner, and then everyone's celebrating, look at all the women partners, but they weren't making it to equity partner and so they were still getting paid much less than their counterparts.
0: Right, and it stands to reason to me, uh if we've logically followed this that if you've been earning less the whole time, your ability to pay in and to become an equity partner is also diminished compared to your male colleagues potentially. Is that not a fair fair thing to say?
1: It is for sure. I think most firms have um I mean, again, this is all very opaque. I, I don't actually know the right. the structure at most firms because it's not made public, but my understanding, um, you know, sort of anecdotally is that there's typically some type of program where you buy in over a period of time or you can get a loan at a special rate or so there. there's solutions to that. Um, and I, I think it's probably unlikely that women and, I could be totally wrong on this, but I think it's unlikely that women aren't getting to equity partner because there's a barrier to them buying in, but that's certainly
0: knocking them down along the way. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, I don't know if this is the right place for it, but as you're speaking, something, a couple of things that are coming to mind for me are, um, this, this culture we have, which I think impacts men more, um, in some ways than women, but this idea that we can't speak up because it's going to be perceived as complaining, right. Um, which really diminishes people from participating fully at work because we can't say, Hey, this is what's going on for me. Right. Um, these are some of the challenges I'm having. And and I think it's part of this patriarchy, patriarchy that I get stuck on that word sometimes, but that Culture of competition and dominance, which I think it's pervasive in a pervasive in a lot of places, and I think it's pervasive in law. We've the, this culture of competition and domination, and and you know, well, it's my file now, and I have to protect it, and you can't get your file back, and 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 if you speak up, you're complaining about it, and real men don't complain; they suck up, right? And um, it's it's you know, what do we think about? what we think of as maybe more traditionally female traits around harmony and cooperation and collaboration. And let's work together on that. Can we not have an atmosphere that is built around those principles that is actually saying, hey, we're all on the same team here, like, how can we work together to make this better for everyone so that the firm does well and competes well, maybe against other firms, but we're not competing against each other. Like, I just think of that as so totally toxic, but I know I'm just a girly weirdo. <laughs> like,
1: It it's, is toxic ah. and you're not a girly weirdo. <laughs> it, is, it is totally true and it's a problem in a lot of professions, I think, and law, maybe most most acutely, that there's this sort of, you're rewarded for being competitive, you're rewarded for being cutthroat against your peers. I'm fortunate to have only worked at law firms that really, I think, don't ascribe to that model. Um, you know, where the I summered an article on Bay Street, and it was made very clear to us from day one, that the the one way to be not hired back as an associate was to be found to be competitive with your peers. They tried to instill from day one that we need to work together and being competitive is is the surest way to get yourself walked out the front door. Um, and then now I'm on a team, I'm on a few teams, but one in particular stands out as being extremely collaborative and supportive and we cover for each other so that everyone gets a break. And there's no, competition over files there's us versus the problem us how can we best serve our clients and that's going to the answer to that's going to be different in different cases Um, but there's no there's no competition but I am so fortunate and so lucky to be in that position and I'm in a clear minority I think
0: for sure and wouldn't it be interesting if if there could you know Maybe there's a way, radical thought here, to reward and compensate people based on those practices and those behaviors because that's the ones that we want to perpetuate and reward
1: for sure. and again, I think that's the problem with this opaque compensation structure to add some you know subjectivity into their into their analysis and into their um, compensation models. But I think we're still not um, valuing women appropriately, even if we're doing that, because I think there's a lot of inherent bias that creeps in. And I think even where we're using objective measures to to decide on compensation, it's not that objective. So if I could, I don't want to be a broken record, but if we go back to this bonus model, so um, again, you're given a base salary and then compens- a big part of your compensation typically comes from this bonus and firms may or may not Tell associates what the criteria are for the bonus or how to get a big bonus. Some sometimes it's completely unknown, and you just have to sort of assume, and people usually assume it means put your head down and bill as many hours as possible. And that is a big component of the bonuses, you know, dollars brought into the firm. And so people say, well, you know, that's an objective thing. If you know, male associate A worked more hours than female associate B, then shouldn't he be paid more? And I think. There's so many problems with that line of thinking, including the fact that more often than not, associates have no say and no control over the work that they're assigned. So um, what type of files are we giving our male associates as compared to our female associates? Are we giving men the high value, high paying, high billing work like a trial, for example, where they're gonna be billing a ton and, and what are we, what are we giving to women, especially if, for example, she's going on parental leave and will be gone for a portion of, or for a year, what's that doing to her ability to get that work and get those files and bill those hours? Um, I should also point out that this was from a study in the US from Sky Analytics, it's a legal invoicing company, but they actually noted that this idea that women work less than men in law firms is a myth, and that women actually build more hours on average, than their male counterparts, but that men's hourly rates were typically set higher, even within the same year of call. So men were bringing in more dollars to the firm because of how the firm chose to set hourly rates. And so, I wouldn't be doing the conversation justice if if I just noted that I think we need to think about what work we're giving women, but it's also just completely a myth that women work less. Women typically work more and harder. They're also given a lot more. What I like to call office housework. Grunt work. Right. Like the unpaid, unrecognized, (laughs) voluntold jobs, like being on endless committees, often about diversity and inclusion. And, you know, the irony there is not lost on me, but they're given a lot of unpaid office housework that is not recognized in our existing compensation models. And so they're spending a lot of time on that. And while their male counterparts are busy you know billing up the wazoo and then getting compensated for it and getting further and further ahead year after year
0: yeah i um I think there, you know, you said law is maybe one of the more, the worst offenders in terms of professions. I think you've got some tight competition from some others. Engineering comes to mind, capital markets, uh, some finance uh, areas in finance come to mind. So there are definitely, there's, there's a competition there for for sure. But I would say that, um, Based on my experience of going into law firms as a support person, uh, in terms of you know the the work that I've done, the consulting work that I've done, and I've you know been into some uh, Toronto, downtown Toronto law firms, a couple of things that struck me. One one is that I'm usually dealing with the HR department, and I I, I have it's been noticeable to me. I mean, I already think that HR is kind of a marginalized department in most organizations. Uh, in law firms, I, I found it particularly noticeable. It seemed to me that everybody there was in servitude to the lawyers and their job where there was just a, to prop those them up and help and just do their bidding. And HR did not seem to have a voice at the table. Again, based on my experience, that's what I noted. And I've also, uh, from my experience working and supporting in that area, and I've had a, some, some um, Uh, career transition call um clients who have uh, there's a whole industry propping up by the way to support lawyers who are leaving the law profession who are just like traumatized right um i have a client right now who uh, he's he's really struggling it's a male but he's really struggling he's just uh traumatized by by the law profession it seems um and the reason
1: our professional regulator um has a program for you know Free counseling for all of its members. Right, it's I, not used enough, but there's a reason that that program exists. And you know, it's a really it can be a really
0: terrible profession that chews people up and spits them out. Yeah, I don't. But I think we can change that. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's so family unfriendly, is the word I'm using again to be a broken record about it. So, would you agree that it's it's just one of the most family unfriendly professions out there?
1: I think I do agree. And again, I have a skewed lens on this because I am a lawyer but I also I did go to business school um, and so I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are in those other industries that you named that are also very family friendly very male dominated Um, but I think law is particularly bad and and part of that feels like you know we can't change it because it's the way the system was designed but part of it I think can be changed so an I'm going to go back to Twitter again. The source of the source of all interesting discussion lately. So, one of the people who's been engaging with my tweets on this point is Greg Allen. He's a lawyer in Vancouver, and he made a thread recently about his experience about why the profession or an an example of the profession being so family unfriendly. And he tells the story of he has this trial that's supposed to start, and then they get an adjournment request on the weekend, and so he has to deal with that, and then. So he says, like, it's impossible to be fully present for your partner and kids when you're in this profession, because things come up. Um, Lawyers can be pretty discourteous to each other in terms of the timing of motions and urgent applications and scheduling. And so um, I noted that that's one of the reasons and one of the ways that the system is designed to push people with primary child care responsibility out this idea that we have to be Always available, that urgent things can come up all the time, and we have to drop everything to deal with them. And so, again, that pushes people with primary childcare responsibilities out, and those people are
0: disproportionately women. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just um we're we're all human beings. And this is not a human-friendly situation. The way based on and there there's so much science and research coming out now, and, and has been for many years. I, I'm actually going to do a whole podcast on how I think that leaders are science deniers because there's been all of this stuff coming out about how our brain operates, what do we need to create great cultures and work environments where people can thrive and not we're not burning them out. People are not doing their best work under these circumstances. And I don't believe for one minute, it needs to be that way. Like I'm just not buying it. It's just that we don't have enough momentum to help create that change. To your point, it's just existed this way for so long. It was built on a very male dominated model because women weren't weren't involved in in it as as much at the time. And we need to redesign it to just be better for everybody. And I think everybody's going to benefit from that.
1: I agree completely. And, you know, I think, again, with the current group of leaders, the current people who are in charge, I think what it's going to take is proof that it's affecting the bottom line. So people aren't doing their best work, enough people leave, enough amazing talent leaves, and it starts to affect dollars and cents. And I think that's what it takes for current leadership to be motivated to make any kind of change. But I think there's room. I think what we really need to do is usher in this new generation of leaders. And I think they need to be BIPOC
0: and they need to be women. And they need to be – self-aware enough have enough eq and enough ability to um sound like a hippie crazy person but they can't only operate in their own self-interest we have to start having some recognition of the greater good of the of having some empathy we need to start having greater care and looking out for one another and and this is why it always troubles me it's been people say oh it's got to be at the bottom line." i i agree it's good at it I think all of these things we're talking about will be beneficial to the bottom line. But the fact that we're putting pressure on, you know, people of color to prove that there is an economic reason why it's good to promote them, I think is absolutely disgusting for starters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm I'm deeply bothered by that, as you could tell. Um, but we need conscientious leaders who are going to be able to look beyond their own self-interest.
1: For sure. And science shows that women are better at that. I think, I I, I don't know if you saw the the articles and the reports about how women led countries dealt with the coronavirus pandemic better and all the sort of thoughts about why that might be. And a lot of it's centered around, you know, women's abilities, their leadership style. So more participative, more democratic, women are willing to, you know, create a group around them a group of experts around them, and then rely on those experts. Um, You know, they take ego out of the equation more, go to the experts and make decisions on that basis. So, um, you know, I thought that was interesting about COVID. And I think that probably
0: would be true in a lot of organizations as well. And there are men who will do that more readily than certain other men, but those men have also had trouble, right? Because um, men who tend to show those types of qualities you're talking about, more humility, for example. Um, So there is some evidence to show that, you know, those more humble males are also penalized in the same way we're talking about them being penalized when they speak up about parental care.
1: Right. Like they're, they're not, they don't have the traits that are the typically masculine, I'm using air quotes heavily there because I hate that, but the typically masculine traits that are rewarded. So if they're not cutthroat, not competitive, um, egocentric, then they're not going to do as well in the systems that we've created. And so they're, they're also not going to get to the top and be able to create real change. So I really, again, I think, Again, there's some faint hope that maybe current leadership will make changes for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivators, but the better option is to, to usher in this new generation of leaders who, are, who have diverse experience, who have lived experience, and who have the guts to burn it down and make the changes that need to be made and stop relying on this antiquated notion of, well, this is how we've always done it. And that's a, that's a problem in law, for sure. This idea of, well, this is how it's always been done. Yeah. Um, and it that doesn't need to be how we do it going forward. So again, there are some firms that are making strides in this area and it's awesome to see. And again, I'm in a, an awesome situation, but it's too, too rare. It's too often held up as the shining example of like, well, look at this firm, they're doing this or, you know, Jane has such supportive mentors and great colleagues and she's really making it, but we're held up as examples for all the wrong reasons. And we shouldn't be these rare, shiny examples. It should be the norm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hallelujah to that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce a segment to this called Deb's unsolicited parenting advice, <laughs> which I think speaks to, uh a little bit about this culture shift that needs to happen because I think, you know, young parents with young families who are both working or, you know, there's going to be some challenges. But before I do that, uh, anything else you want to say on any of this stuff? Anything else that you think is important uh, to add?
1: You know, I think I could go on for days and days about this, but I think I've hit all the major points that I told myself I needed to hit
0: going. Okay. My, I have two teenage boys. Right. So, um, you know, I, I'm reflecting back on career and family and, and, you know, the time with my children and all of that and balancing all of these things. And so I'm coming at it from, from some different lenses. And a, a couple things I would I would say to anybody with a young family. One of the things is that you um, one of the things I made a real effort to do, and I think is a, a great strategy and even to do more of it than I did, is early on when my kids were like in daycare and, and 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 in in younger grades, I made a real effort to get to know the other parents, especially the parents who um were the parents of my my kids' friends, right? and you know we in the same we had lots in common we but we had young children the same age we lived in the same community we went to the same school right so there was lots to to grow uh, you know a connection there and and then when I started so I started to get to know them I made an effort and then you know I would say hey you know can we will take your kid and i what was great too is that my kids are a couple of years apart so they often had starting a daycare they became friends with siblings who were you know so there was an older one that was friends with my older son a younger one so i would hey your kids want to come over for the afternoon eventually we would do sleepovers how great was this hey i'll take your two kids for a sleepover next week or next month you take my two kids for a sleepover it was so brilliant and then we would say, hey, you know what? Let's exchange numbers. If I'm uh, having a day where I'm running late to pick up my kids at daycare, I had a couple parents that I could call or or text and say, I'm running late. Can you help me out? Can you grab my kids? And likewise, I did that for other people quite a number of times. In fact, I probably did it more for others than I asked for for them to do it for me, but building up this community of support is so important for parents and you have to be proactive about it and look for ways to give and take in that. And for, for my husband and I, especially when the kids were young, that was really uh, something that was very, something we, we came to really, really appreciate about some of the people we got to know during that time. The other thing I'm going to say now, this is, I think more true for boys, um, but it's true for kids in general. They need to know that moms don't do everything, right? And I've, I, I realized that I didn't do a very good job of this when my kids were little. And if I was to go back in time, I would do a better job of this starting when they're really young um, to, you know, I often think. If this was like pre-industrial times and, you know, before people started to have to leave work and commute somewhere to go to work, leave their home, you know, usually, you know, often people ran a family business or you ran a farm or something like that. And the kids were part of it. That was just a natural part of their upbringing that they had certain responsibilities. Well, I'm trying to create an atmosphere in my home now where the running of the home and the caring for one another is all is everybody's responsibility. We all need to pitch in. That's all, everybody's job, and we need to have uh, everybody needs to be involved, and, every, and we need to have really open dialogue about how we're splitting up those those chores and activities, right? Because it's actually a lot of work just to run a household. I think For that's sure. and and women that's well families. Let's say one of the things that's happened as more women have entered the workforce is we have really lowered our standards around home. And uh, I, I mean, growing up, my house was always immaculate and I cannot say that for my home. It's that's not happening, right? Me neither. <laughs> right? We have really lowered our standards. And I think, um, so it's important to really bring kids into that early on, make them part of the process, and especially for boys. Um, and even if you're in a situation where mom does do more of it because just economically that's the way it works out in your house, you've got to shore up maybe the, your husband's career who's maybe working more or in a, in a in that bigger career role there still needs to be a lot of dialogue about why things are split up the way they are and and, and, and com- open conversation and dialogue about it. And then the last thing I'm gonna say, and this became, this was reinforced for me recently when I personally at, at home, one of my children had a case of COVID in, in his classroom. And w- that meant that immediately we had to sort of switch gears and it impacted both my children because they both had to self-isolate. And so that impacted my older son as well. And, and in fact, it impacted him more and it was more difficult for him because it wasn't like his whole class was just, okay, well, now we're going online. It was just him and figuring out what does this mean for him and how he's going to shift. And so and this, this coincided at a time when my husband was under some real demands at work and some pressing deadlines and had been working a ton of extra hours. And I had a couple of days, you know, I went through a week where at the end of the week, I just thought, oh my God, why am I so exhausted? Well, I was exhausted from the, me- the, the, the emotional labor of supporting and propping up everybody in your family. And I don't say, I don't say this to sound like I resent this. I'm happy to do this um, for my, but you know, I, I think we often underestimate the emotional labor that goes into parenting and also supporting your spouse because hopefully in your family, everybody is getting the emotional support that they need. And um it's draining, it's really draining to do that. And so it's not just about the physical work of who does the laundry, but who's there for people when, you know, who do the kids go to every time they need to talk something through? and And you know what, we need to raise our kids to readily have that dialogue. That's part of their emotional well-being and emotionally balanced well-being. so we raise fewer narcissists and sociopaths who are dangerous to our our um, our world for sure. I agree completely and I think
1: so it's funny. So I have a baby boy and when I found out I was going to be having a boy, I kind of panicked because I was like, "Oh no. I'm going to be giving birth to an extremely privileged white male. What do I do? How do I do that? How do I make sure he doesn't fall into all the traps that are that are the patriarchy?" And so I one of the first things I did was I had Collected this big uh, collection of children's books that has been sitting in my parents' basement since I was a little kid. And so I was you know all excited, setting up the nursery, putting the putting the books up on the bookshelf, and I started to go through them. And I immediately got rid of any book where the woman was always in an apron and the dad was always wearing, even when they're animals, like you've got little, animals where the mom is wearing an apron and clearly doing something around the house, even though that's not the point of the narrative. And then the dad is running out the door with a suit and tie and briefcase. Like, And I ended up with a very small collection of books from what was once a huge collection of books. So I agree that work needs to start early. I did not want my child having these messages drilled into him you know subliminally from day one that mom does work around the house and dad does work outside the home and i think that goes back to the parental leave issue i think that parental leave is a huge part of setting up a family dynamic and who is i think it creates a primary parent basically so for a period of time one person is working and one person is at home with the kid that person who's at home tends to become the primary parent and you know if they're lucky the other parent is helpful when given directed tasks and they contribute but there's still this dynamic and i think the other partner taking a parental leave does a lot to undo that from the beginning so if there's a period of time for example in my family it was very important to me that my husband was willing to take a paternity leave that was in my terms and conditions before we even talked about marriage Um, And so, you know, there's going to be a period of time starting next month, actually, where I'm at work, and he is at home with the kid 100% responsible for him during work hours. And I think that's going to be important for our dynamic going forward. And our kid understanding that he has two equal parents,
0: not a primary parent and a secondary parent. Yeah, it's so important for for boys to receive that love and affection um from both parents, right? To see to see that modeled in the home. And um and I and, and I'm also really cognizant, uh especially because I have boys, is I don't want them to feel guilty about things. I don't want them to feel um it's a bit it's a bit tricky actually, you know, it's because I want the best for my kids too, just as I would if they were girls. There's a lot set up. There's so much focus on on success for, for women and um and we've got to create the right atmosphere for boys to be accepting of that, you know, and to be able to um contribute fully and show up as parents, as spouses as friends to one another. Like I, I, I really believe now too, we need to make it safer for men to unload all of their shit on other people other than the only woman in their life. Okay. Like you have to guys get yourself a therapist, get yourself some male friends that you can actually have a real conversation with because it's too exhausting for that, that, that woman in your life to carry all your burdens. And now I'm going on a bit of a rant, but you know, men are, True. for whatever reason, and I don't blame them. I know this is part of the, the damage of patriarchy is that they weren't raised to do that very well. And we need to start changing that, you know, we need to start changing that script for men. For sure. Because they're burning out too, right? They live five years less, you know, they're, they're burning out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to talk about one thing you we started this. Little segment here, Deb's unsolicited advice (laughs) with unsolicited advice for parents. And I think a really important thing is to give some unsolicited advice to um, people who are mentoring and working with young parents and especially young women. So um, my principal Yola Ventresca, again, I'm going to go back to Twitter here, but she had a really awesome Twitter thread that generated a lot of really important discussion. Um, and she created this thread that had um, concrete strategies for how people supervising young women lawyers can affect change today while we work toward broader systemic change, which is the goal. But there are some things we need to just be doing today. We can't sit around and wait for that change to happen. So I just want to highlight some of her suggestions because I think it's rare to get clear, concrete ideas in, in this space. And I think it's important. Again, we can't put all the Onus on young women and young parents, um, we to create a good environment for themselves. We need the people who are in charge to create that for them. So Yola, the first thing she mentioned was to check in on your juniors, especially your junior women. Ask how she's doing, get a sense of the hours she's working, and confirm that she has room for downtime, which is really important. Mm-hmm. And then open up about your own struggles in this area. So create this this safe space where, you know, you're sharing your struggles and how hard you're working and how you're creating downtime for yourself so that she feels like she can open up about that as well. Um, encourage her to guard jealously her private time and model the same by doing so yourself. So it's not going to go over well to just tell your juniors, you know, make sure you're taking time if you're not modeling that yourself. Um, and then importantly, you have to take concrete steps to allow for that downtime. So Yola noted, and I can confirm it's true that sometimes she covers work for her juniors herself. Um, She'll ask another member of the team to step in. We all cover for each other and that means we all get to break. Um, But it's important for the principal to initiate an action that plan. We can't be relying on the juniors to ask their peers to cover for them and ask their boss if that's okay. Um, the principal really needs to be the one to step in and do that. And then flexibility. So flexibility in a few ways. Number one, again, we talk about in law, there's lots of urgent, there's lots of urgency, there's lots of external deadlines that are hard or impossible to move. Um, but internal deadlines can and should be flexible. Um, most of the time we can be flexible and we're choosing not to be. So we need to work together better on that. And then working hours, and that's especially true during the pandemic, working hours should be flexible. There's obviously there's going to be some, you know, client facing meetings and whatnot that need to happen during what what I'll call typical business hours. But otherwise, we need to recognize that different people have different obligations and maybe working at odd hours, and that should be okay. And then uh, don't give files away. So one really concerning thing Yola was seeing was people saying that in order to help the junior women who all of a sudden are, you know, have kids who are in virtual school and who are dealing with the the pandemic and working from home was that their files were being taken away as this sort of patronizing way to help them manage all their responsibilities. But that's not the answer. That's taking away good work from them that is going to impact their compensation, their trajectories their experience and so that's not the answer instead we instead of taking them away thinking we're helping we need to help with scheduling help her reclaim agency and control work with her to come up with a plan for what she can fit in and what she can't and so and if we don't do all these things we're going to lose talent men and women very imminently. and so this is a really urgent problem for employers and not just
0: employees right well, that is great advice and a great spot for us to end. Um, thank you so much for doing this. And, you know, I might be coming back to you because as I said, the area of employment law is, uh, is an interesting one and it crosses over with a lot of, I think, potential topics for the work revolution. So thank you so much for doing this, Jane. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I am preparing for the next evolution of the Work Revolution podcast, including a slightly different format. I have lots of great topic ideas I want to explore around workplace practices that create general cynicism about corporations and the trustworthiness of leaders, and that contribute to underrepresentation of women, racialized people, and members of the LGBTQ community all of which results in our workplaces missing out on great talent that can drive change and innovation that is so badly needed in all sectors of our economy right now. If you've been listening, I'd love to hear your feedback. What's been resonating resonating with you? What hasn't? Uh, what would you like to hear more of? You can get in touch with me at deborah at workrevolution.ca or on Instagram at work underscore revolution. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please spread the word, rate, and review the show. Until next time.